This is Joshua Bell with the Kilt in the Cloth Tuesday morning Bible study with the First Christian Church of Perry. And we're continuing our discussion in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 40. Um, but before we begin, we have a question. Go for it, Pam. Okay, so in the one we're going to read today, Jesus goes to um, Nazareth. Yes. And the teachers of the law meet him there. And then shortly later, he's talking somewhere else and Pharisees. I, are there Pharisees outside of Jerusalem? I thought they were all a sect there in Jerusalem. Good question. Uh, Pharisees are everywhere. Uh, they are, um, they literally are the rabbis of the synagogues all over the place. So, um, so if you remember, you can't be Jewish regardless of today or even back then by yourself. You have to be in a community of believers. So the community of believers, uh, so you want to think of a Pharisee as literally like a rabbi or like me. Uh, I'm uh, a local pastor. I work with this, uh, a flock of people, but people would use that phrase. Um, and, and that would be my whole role. So at that time, as well as today, Pharisees would have been uh, all over the place. So maybe I'm confusing Pharisees with Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin is in Jerusalem. So yes, the Sanhedrin is in Jerusalem, and it's a uh, it's a legal body of people uh, that was created um, really for the practices and procedures of living out Torah, and then they also took care of all of the judicial stuff. Like so, if somebody broke the law uh, besides the Torah, like just the part of the Levitical and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomistic laws outside of those, even the Sanhedrin would enforce those. So, okay. when we get to those, we might ask Sally if, where it says teacher here, if it says Pharisee, if yeah. it says Pharisee in one place and teacher somewhere else. Yeah, because last week we got into that. That the uh, what was the it was the gram, the the word for teacher mm -hmm. was actually scribe. Oh, grammar or something. They got me all confused. Yeah, because we work here for, for that. One. Yeah, so that. The interesting thing is, is in the Greek, sometimes the translation was made simple, but the, but it didn't necessarily speak to what the actual language said. And that, and that matters because in the first century, everybody that would have known this word would have thought scribe. And what, the, what we translated it as was uh, teachers of the law. Well, that's not the same thing. That's a totally different role. Well, who are the Sadducees then? So the Sadducees then become the interpreters. They're the lawyers. Okay. So they're the ones that say, here's how the law works. Uh, and then this, yeah, that makes it easy. That's the easiest, simplistic way to say it. Sadducees are the, uh, like the lawyers of the thing. And Pharisees is the police department. Pharisees are the police department and the teachers. So they're the ones that are saying, this is how you're supposed to do it. When you do it wrong, they're going to call you out on it. Not the police department. They, they are the ones in charge of the police department. Yeah, 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 because there's a police force, right? So the Pharisees would send you for breaking the law. Does that help? We're going to get into it. Well, I'm going to have to write these down. Yeah, this is, this is, this is complicated because when we, when, we, when we were originally taught this, we put them all in one big lump sum. Like we just say, well, a Pharisee and a Sadducee and priests and scribes, they're all bad. 
And they're all in Jerusalem. <laughs> and they're all in Jerusalem. We say that. I mean, like that's literally in our high school curriculum. Just hanging out in Jerusalem, looking for trouble. Literally, yeah. right? And then, and then, and it's weird too because the way the Gospels write them is just these these people that are are the rulers of the Jewish world, right? Like he's Jewish, uh, always are portrayed as bad. And I'm not saying that what they're doing is not uh, ill ill informed, but it would be the same thing if somebody came into our congregation today and said, uh, well, God has told me that Josh should wear purple robes every Sunday. And God told me that. And so you should be doing this. And I would look at him and say, or her and say, uh, no, I'm not wearing a purple robe. Uh, and you're not going to make me uh, because God didn't tell me that. I mean, like that's part of what's also happening here. So yeah, it's really complicated here because we have always been taught they're all the same and they all are bad. But in some aspects, I don't necessarily think they're all bad. Well, I don't think exactly what them were Jews. Oh, yeah. All, all of these all are, of were Jews. All of these were Jews. It's, a, it's just that they failed to realize what's going on. Yeah. Well, and and they're trying to and they're trying to protect their people. You know, right. what, what he's saying is 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 really radical. And so these roles, which is why the Greek part comes into it, really matter. If a scribe is saying this, they're going to have a different interpretation than a Sadducee. And if a Sadducee is hearing it, they're going to be totally different than a Pharisee. And then a priest, well, oh my goodness, that's a whole nother conversation. And all of these, this is the part that Dr. Carter is making in the commentary in this gigantic book, is, is that all of them work for Rome. And the Jewish world at the same time. Most of them were appointed by the Roman uh, rulers of the area. And so Caiaphas. They, they had no choice but to work for that, That's right. They had no choice. That's, that's why Caiaphas is such a historically fascinating person. He was the chief priest for Israel for 37 years. That didn't happen. You see, that, that's, a, that's a weird deal. Caiaphas himself had seen so many different historical changes that by the time he dies, retires, uh, when he dies, uh, they didn't know what to do because he had been he had been working the system in such a way to protect his people and do the bidding of Rome at the same time that when he died, they don't they don't know what to do. And it was shortly after that that the temple gets destroyed. So the, so then when you get to this point, yes, all the Pharisees are bad, the Sadducees are bad, the scribes are bad, the priests are bad. But at the same time, when you look back at it from a different perspective, they're trying to protect and they don't get it. They're not supposed to. And Jesus is saying that they're not doing it correct. And they're hearing you're attacking our religion. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, who are you? They're not taking it personally. Well, they are taking it personally. They absolutely it's, are. It's the religion that he's attacking, and that's what they're trying to defend. Um, my perception, even more than <laughs> themselves. I mean, yes, maybe not Caiaphas. He's got. He is the church, or the yeah, religion. he's he's doing everything he's trying to do yeah. to keep to keep it from being destroyed. Yeah, keep it the way it is. Yeah. So he's so this is this is a see Pam. It was a good question. It starts off a really dis, good discussion of. Yes, there were Pharisees outside of Jerusalem. Yes, there were scribes outside Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin was in Jerusalem, and, and there was a massive problem 
sociologically with this Sanhedrin. And nobody liked it. Um, the, I mean, even, even Rome struggled with it. I'm reading another book that Dr. Carter wrote. Uh, it's just entitled Pontius Pilate. And he's done extreme research on it. In, and, and he didn't even like the Sanhedrin, but they were a means to an end. So it, it, it's, a, it's an interesting conversation. I would think that even though they, they, didn't, they were opposed to the Sanhedrin, they, Rome's thing was to go into a community and let them rule themselves as long as they didn't do step on their toes. Well, it's cheaper and, so, and easier. And so they, they were the lesser of two evils. Yeah. If they didn't have their own people ruling them, then Rome would put somebody there. And then they have to pay for that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a logistical nightmare to go into a country that's already established now here's our our Roman force because they paid their soldiers and they paid the, the generals and then they paid the people that watched the generals and <laughs> it was I mean it was smart like um, so yeah this is this is a, a really big deal um, so let's let's start there which is really fascinating because we start off with uh, last week we got to this not not peace but a sword Conan the super Jew to whoever welcomes you welcomes me right off the bat and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me whoever welcomes a prophet in the name of a prophet will receive a prophet's reward i love that and whoever welcomes a righteous person in the name of a righteous person will receive the reward of the righteous and whoever gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in the name of a disciple, truly, I tell you, none of these will lose their reward. <coughs> Just a really great imagery that comes from there. Um, little ones are disciples. This, this, it highlights this, the vulnerability and the danger of this group um, that, that's really challenging this Roman imperial world. So now when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, so that was all to the 12, not to the mass. <clears throat> he went on from there to teach and proclaim the message in their city. So now he's switching. I think Dr. Carter says that at this point, when we get to this place, he says specifically because, um, yeah, the identity and negative response to Jesus and John. So now they have to respond to him and his identity. <clears throat> So what, right off the bat, when John heard in prison what the Messiah was doing, uh, right there, do you have Orthochrist? Christ, Christ Christi. Christi. Uh He sent by word his disciples. Is that? Matheton. Matheton. Yeah, she and I had this conversation. Matheton is this word that they use for disciples. And there's another one. That got brought up last time was was apostolos. Yeah, for apostles. For apostles. So this is where we get the word apostles. Obviously. And, and they're different. Uh, so this is these are the ones that are students of Jesus. Apostolos are those that are kind of working for Jesus. It's uh, it's kind of a noun and a verb, I guess, is where I would go. That's why Paul is not a disciple. I mean, that's right. That's why he is not a disciple. They don't use that word for him. They use apostolos the whole time through his letters because he, he didn't learn under Jesus. <clears throat> and uh, he, so this is the same problem. He sent word by his disciples. So these are John the Baptist <coughs> students 
Are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Jesus answered, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed. Um, there's something important there. Oh, um, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them, and is blessed, and blessed is anyone who takes no, no offense at me. Um, something specific. Oh, he's quoting Isaiah. That's what it was. These are Isaiah's visions. <clears throat> These miraculous uh, actions. Uh, it talks about God's empire becoming whole. Um, Dr. Carter talks about, well, we haven't got there yet, but as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind. What then do you go... Uh, out to see someone dressed in soft robes. Uh, look, those who wear soft robes are in royal palaces. What then do you go out to see? A prophet? Now this is, I'm going to pause for just a second and, uh, and talk a little bit about this. We have not had this conversation and I had to write a whole paper on this thing. It's, it's uh, um, but so it's important to understand that while Rome is in power, there is a sense of masculinity that Rome will throw out. A masculine man in the Roman world uh, is one that wears soft robes. The reed is a robe. Silk, silk or cotton? Silk or cotton, yeah. Yes. And, and, and they are, uh, they, their features are unblemished. They are, they, they take on this, their, their idea of masculinity and ours are very different. <clears throat> this is a joke, this, this part right here that Matthew is making about those that are in leadership. Um, he's, he's literally saying, so did you go out to see someone dressed in soft robes? Like, one of those guys, you know, the Roman guys that are all dressed in their fancy clothes and making a comment on, on the way that they dress. Um, obviously, uh, Jesus does not belong to the elite and is not wearing soft robes. He is not considered um, the, the words that... I, I never really got this down right. I, I struggled with this because... The United States and understanding the difference between femininity and masculinity, uh, they were not as blurred as they are now. But be, even before, the masculine man, the John Wayne version, that didn't happen until the 20th century. Um, you know, masculine men uh, wore suits and ties and they had handkerchiefs and they had their hair coiffed a certain way. They, they wore hats. There was a thing until the 20th century. And then all of a sudden when movies happened we created the country western star right and a man a, a real marlboro man, man that's right the marlboro man the, a real man doesn't cry uh, a, a real man uh doesn't show emotion or feelings um and that's a 20th century phenomenon so it's we've we're already messed up right so when you look at this in the first century this is something that we can kind of relate to but even then, there's this thing about 
people will recognize Jesus without having to be like the Roman masculine male. And, and the ones that you've seen in sculptures, you look at their sculptures, they're, they're beautiful, beautiful not, men. Not rugged like ah, there it is. There's no ruggedness to <clears throat> a ruggedness thing is people that work for a living. That's and and, and who works? Women. Oh, at the bottom. That's right. The non elite. The, the non elite also. Women work. So if you if you have rough rugged hands, you can't be a part of the elite. You're not fully masculine at that point. You see how that works? So like the soldiers weren't masculine either then. Well, they're the most they're masculine kind, right? Because they are. They are dressed and shown in their armor, and to die for Rome was a masculine thing. Yes, but when you penetrate a man in the field of battle, you neuter him. You, you take away his masculinity. That's, that's how that is viewed. So if I stab somebody, they are no longer a man. <clears throat> they have been penetrated by me. And therefore, have turned into something different. I'm not saying a woman, but less than a man. Less than a man. Yes. So they're not worth anything. And, and then, 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 the, then there's the image that comes from this, like there's that fight in battle. If I do that and I'm a full man, uh, what will happen then is uh, I don't have to worry about PTSD because I haven't been turned into, I haven't been pierced. I'm not psychologically the whole culture is saying all of those people are less than humans now that have died and obviously rome wanted you to win it's a really crazy concept yes Rob. yeah i, I didn't want to get too far away from and we were getting there quick why is john john's in prison oh yeah and he's already baptized jesus so why is he questioning if jesus is the one well, I mean, he, he's already, he's probably the only one that knows who Jesus is. That was my exact thoughts, too. I mean, yeah. So, I, I didn't want to get too far away nope. from it. This is, this is a good question. Um, I, I have to, I'm, I'm going to go to Dr. Carter for that answer. Uh, Jesus emphasized recognition response to his action. Blessed is anyone who takes no offense at me, at, at me. He's basically saying, are you the one that is coming? John spoke of the coming one in his testimony, but there was no uniform, widespread Messianic expectation. Jesus' ministries had demonstrated power and authoritative teachings and miracles and offered salvation. John just wants to make sure that he's got it confirmed. Okay, it's, so he's not questioning whether he's the son of God. He's questioning no. whether he's going to do what, what we've been told. Yeah, what he, what he thinks is going to happen that's Which right john probably is fire and brimstone so very much so but he's out there on the edge and john's in prison and he i think he knows his life is short yes and i think it's a little bit like uh was anna and when Simeon wanted to see I, I will see the christ child before i die yep i think he's wanting to have confirmation before he dies because he's not going to see the ministry played out that's right I would, I would totally go with this. There's a, did we get to verse 10 yet? We're almost there. Sorry. No, you're I good. Because I, I got to read this. Uh, but, but this has to do with your, the, the second part of that question. 
I'm going to finish this last last part. He's also making fun of King Harry, the the reed part. That was something that was on their signet. It's they wore everywhere. So he's like, "Did you go a reed shaken by the wind?" That is literally a slam against Harry. <clears throat> you have no power except for what by Rome has given you. And the wind is that Numos? Um, Onimu. 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 Onimu is not exactly wind. Onimu is. Uh, by their actions. Onimu is it's like the word animation, but it's more like. I have to think about that one. Something about an unstable person. Oh yeah, he was. This this one is Herod Antipas at this point, and he he literally just kind of goes everywhere and anywhere, does whatever he wants. He's he's just kind of a he's he's a survivor. He's a survivor. Back way up because he was Mark Antony. Yeah, Mark Antony. <coughs> and and he died. Yeah. So he had to switch horses. And, yeah. In midstream. Yeah. So uh. So he goes, uh, yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is the one about whom is written. Um, see, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare the way for you. Now, we all know that that's found in Isaiah and stuff to that nature. Malachi. 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 Uh, and in this passage, this, uh, this is really kind of fascinating. Um, so the the if we just read the part where the elite wear these soft robes because they don't do any work they don't really do anything uh this this next part is in this prophet this term embraces does not negate the previous possibilities however the interesting thing is those who predict the future such as vespasian will be emperor people who reveal a god's will uh, such as Joshua ben Aniah declares the doom against Jerusalem that we hear about in Josephus, uh, also become uh, something of power. The audience knows that, yes, John is a prophet who confronts the status quo and announces repentance to prepare for God's imminent intervention, which will manifest God's reign over all that it opposes. Jesus's question confirms all of this. He then moves beyond it. And he says, well, this is how a prophet works, by saying, truly I tell you, among those born of women, no one has arisen greater than John the Baptist. Yet the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. Uh, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John came. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Let anyone with ears listen. That's a big Matthean thing. He says this a lot. This is the Elijah. He's the Elijah. He is the, well, that's cool. I, um, mine just says he is Elijah. Was the Greek just says he is Elijah. Yeah, it, it's the probably one, the one about to come. So, uh, so it's Elijah it's the, the prophet. The prophet. Interesting that they added that in there. And it works. I mean, the the the, sim, the, the simple way to say that is, is the translations all work in that area. This is one of those 
you can substitute the words fine, but uh, but then he says, but what will uh, what will I? But to what will I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We wailed, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look. A glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet the women, wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. Yet wisdom, oh, is this Sophia? Sophia. Oh, yes. So there's Sophia. This, I'm sorry, I got a little excited there. <laughs> this is, uh, uh, so wisdom is, um, historically, wisdom is one of those things that we use for, um, how do I say this? Sophia doesn't get talked about enough. Um, Sophia, the word wisdom um, is literally the same word that we use, not Sophia, but the word wisdom in the Hebrew Bible is also used for the term of God. Uh, when we describe God, this wisdom is that um, it's a feminine singular noun, right? Sophia is a feminine singular noun, which means that in the, the, the Hebrew, which is, is leading my mind right at the moment, has this moment where God, this is the image that you have with God, and God's um, playing the, the, the mother hen, where God wraps God's arms around you and enfolds you into uh, his arms like a mother hen would. Um, this, is, this is a beautiful thing and then matthew does this yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds so where where you will you you'll hear uh in the 20th in the 20 well more of the 21st century this is not saying that god is a woman okay but this is god as a woman you're not know saying that it's back to the greeks with several interpretations of love that's right i mean there's there's this this idea that God has to be some dude in a white robe with a really long beard and 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 and, and that's fine if that's your image of God that's okay but in Greek and at that time frame they saw God in all kinds of ways. What you're saying is that uh, the uh, the wisdom part of God was female. Uh, that was what my uh, <laughs> my Hebrew Bible professor said, and uh, we stick with it. Um, if God is our creator and he makes both awesome. men and women, uh -huh. Uh -huh. that's <laughs> right. Isn't he allowed to have attributes of, of both men and women if he created? That's the whole both point. Of us? Yeah. But for some reason, it was a really hard, it's still really hard to, for people to see past that. Like it, it's so hard for us to look at God being both and rather than either or. Except all of us also have feminine and masculine characteristics. That's exactly right. Yes. And so for some reason, uh, this is this is hard for us. But this Sophia is literally, and I'm getting goosebumps as I'm telling you this, throughout the whole New Testament, you will see Sophia in these moments where God is loving. Uh, and, and, I, and I'm trying to be very careful how I say this. There's a tendency to say that that means that God is also nurturing. Uh, like all women are nurturing, um, which frankly, I take kind of offense at. Uh, I mean, I think that I'm a pretty good nurturer. It doesn't mean that I'm less of a man because of that, right? It's just a character trait. 
And there are certainly women who are poor at that. That's right. <laughs> there, there are a lot of women that are poor at that. Uh, but not my wife. I didn't say that. I didn't, no. I didn't say that. <laughs> but, in, but this is not that. This, this wisdom here is God's love being passed on. And yet the wisdom of God is vindicated by her deeds. Oh, we had a question. Oh, no. So I didn't see a hand. Kind of summarizing real quick. Is that a hand or is that your mouse on Jerry? Oh, it's, a, it's the mouse. Sorry. Summarizing real quick. Jesus is saying, we sent you one guy and you didn't like him. We sent you another guy that's completely opposite. You bashed him. Uh -huh. God knows what he's doing. He's taking care of all of y'all. Mm -hmm. Also, they, I mean, we, are, we can only look at all this through our eyes and our knowledge and the way we are today. I think we're more hung up in our male-female roles than they were back then. Oh, yeah. I mean. Yeah. And, and, and again, it's a 20th century weirdness. Like, I don't, I mean, you look at throughout history, there's always been a, a masculine and a feminine understanding of, of human beings. The funny thing is, is it's not until the 20th century that you have a visual image of it so dramatically interpreted, interpreted, you know. Uh, so all of a sudden, this idea of God being uh, of a feminine nature, it, it, it bothers people more than I think it did back then and, and as even before the 20th century. But nobody talked about this. Nobody talked about Sophia. Sophia got written out for a long time. I had minister friends of mine back in the 90s that found out about Sophia and thought, oh, this is really cool. Why don't we call God Sophia sometimes? That's really neat. And they did. And then they got fired and they couldn't understand. <laughs> like they would say it. And God Sophia and all of her infinite wisdom. And you're like, uh, did you just say that? Yeah, but that's true. And you're like, yeah, but you're going to freak them all out. <laughs> and then they would get in big trouble, right? Because they nobody had this conversation. And I, and I say that knowing full well that the book was written by men. Yes, <laughs> which is even more fascinating. And, and the men, well, like we discussed with scribes, they're going to tend to put in there some of their thoughts, some of their feelings. Yeah. So with this idea, so if men are writing this, cities in Hebrew, and I think Greek, typically, uh, have some sort of feminine component to it, like the names of the cities. Uh, Beersheba, for example, that's a, that's a, uh, uh, or Bethsheba or Bethphage. These are all homes of phage. Then, then there's a feminine quality to it. So cities are always viewed as feminine. I'm going to this, I promise. Uh, it's the, their terminology, and this is a guy writing it. So he says this thing about Sophia, and then check this out. Right now, he's going to talk about those that are unrepentant cities. Guy, guy does this. Uh, the guy writes this. Then he began to reproach the cities in which most of his deeds of power had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, and he names them, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. 
And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done, it remained until this day. But I tell you on that day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you. Um, so these are cursed places now. Um, this goes all the way to Capernaum, um, where uh, all of the stuff that just happened is now done. The place of the dead and here the condemnation. Yeah. And we're compared with Tyre and Sodom. So it, it's just all of these people are based off of ethnicity. So, but they're all names of cities, not people, right? So here's God, Sophia, and her infinite wisdom, um, and then names these cities who have fallen short of the grace of God. This is eschatology at its finest. Eschatology is the study of the, the coming of an end, the age, right? The end of an age. Boom, there it is. These places are going to burn in Hades. Why did they leave that with Laura? Well, because her own stories joined. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. there's, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of problems with Sodom and uh, Gomorrah. Um, Some talked about it, some didn't. Sodom, they knew. Obviously, this is a geographical location. They knew about Sodom, but they must not have known about Gomorrah. <clears throat> or, aside and, um, I looked up the reference for where they were mentioned, and, and I still didn't figure out what happened to them. Evidently, they were destroyed, but uh -huh. I don't know. Yeah, wiped off the face of the earth. Yeah, this is, this is one of the, but who, who, who wiped them off the face of the earth? Scribes. Scribes. That's 100% right. As, as they would tell you, they, they, are, they are gone. The, the winner uh, writes the story, right? Who did? Vespasian. Vespasian. Okay. Yeah. So pretty much Rome. Yeah, Rome does. Okay. Yeah, uh, so for those of you that don't know, Bill Uten, uh, who I call Gunner, is, um, he's, he's an old school history teacher and loves, loves, loves old battles, specifically Rome. And one of the things that he'll tell you right off the bat is historically when this stuff happens, is, is that what Rome would do, specifically Vespasian, because he's just a nut job and brilliant strategic mind, it's just that when you wipe them out, you wipe away everything that anybody can identify. The interesting thing about the New Testament is, is that they named towns that nobody heard of because they've been gone. Um, they just wiped them out. Uh, it's, it's the same problem we have in the United States where towns existed. We know that they existed. For example, I grew up in McAllister. How many of you have heard of Buck Tussle? Yeah. yeah. Buck Tussle. Carl Albert's from there. Carl Albert's from there. I went to school there. at Carl Albert. That's the only reason I know. <laughs> See, this, is, sure. this is an important thing. But Bug Tussle doesn't exist anymore. The place does. Where it lived, lived was. But the only reason you all know about it is because of Carl Albert. And, you know, so uh, this is that kind of story. It's gone it, it, for whatever reason. Uh, in this case, uh, Gunnar would tell you it's, it's another one of those places where Rome has wiped them away and gone forever. Capernaum obviously was too big and too broad you don't want to knock that away 
Uh, I didn't mean to get all dark there, but that's the that's the truth. So the the Gomorrah conversation. I mean, uh, Doctor Carter doesn't even doesn't even bring that. So I'm I'm gonna just guess that that's on purpose. So the word for um, um, in verse twenty three for Hades or regions below or whatever how it's Hades. Yeah, so that's the underworld. Okay, because often when you when they talk about this, they talk about that fire outside of Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's the same word. Yeah, no, this, this is Hodu. Yeah, this is Hodu. Hodu. This, and this is, uh, so this is also a problem, right? So uh, Gehenna is usually used for that. When they do it this way, there's an obvious, obvious audience change. Um, so. Hell doesn't exist for the Jews. No, hell doesn't. Hell doesn't exist for the Jewish culture. Um, you 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 have shul. There's no Hades. So obviously, there's an audience change and uh, an appropriation, which is weird, right? Because the only ones that talk about Hades are the Romans and maybe the Greeks. Points us into the place of the dead. Place of the dead. Interesting. Which would be shul, but. In Greek, that would not be the word that they would be using at the time. To the depths is what mine says. And to the depths. With the footnotes said Hades, and I knew they didn't have Hades. So. Right. So, so this is so your translations are are trying to be gracious, polite, polite which is fine. There's nothing wrong with it. I, I'm just and I'm just being a, a matter of fact like that. In this place, this would have been an audience change talking specifically about. Hodu as a, a as an appropriation from the culture. Let's keep going. We're, we're rolling today. At the time, Jesus said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you that are weary, and I am carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in my heart, humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Uh, the word souls there? That's where we get yeah, psychology it's from. It's interesting. Uh, I lost myself. Uh, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is this is super deep. Um, I mean, he's, he spends two whole pages breaking it down. No, four pages breaking it down, but uh, I want. I want to. I want to read just the, just the the one part here. Jesus acknowledges God's revelation not to the powerful elite, but to the receptive, marginal infants. Celebrates his role as revealer and liberator, and invites the weary and burdened to find salvation by acknowledging God's sovereignty, which will be established over all. Um, there's a conversation about heaven and earth, uh, which 
is written by uh, Philo at that time, which is pretty fascinating. Um, Statius calls the emperor Domitian, Lord of the Earth, Great Father of the World. Philostratus uh, talks about Apollonius and, and, and identifies him as the master of sea and land. Uh, so these are these are things that they would have known. They would have heard this language in their past. The Daniel passage is the part that was fascinating. Thanks for giving God's revealing activity in Daniel, First Enoch, God's new age waiting for the revelation, which we find in Jeremiah and Habakkuk, uh, which is fascinating. Those who seek, this is why I use Sirach uh, and uh, Baruch at um, Advent, because this would have been closer to the time of Jesus' birth. Infants is a met, uh, metaphor, but we talked about that. And then it just goes on and on and on because it's so great. However, his call, take my yoke, is double-sided. It is to experience in his words and actions God's liberating presence and life-giving empire that free everyone, everything and everyone, including political and religious elites who deprive people of just of the just life which God intends. Particularly, that means freedom from Rome's reign, which will be accomplished at Jesus' imminent return. Second, to take Jesus' yoke is to live under God's reign in the meantime, in the struggle against such power, and in anticipation of the full establishment of God's empire. So it's cool. Okay, so my interpretation on this, city, city border red, never had animals. Right. My interpretation of the yoke is the animal's time. So I've always to, to pick my yoke upon you is a bad thing. When reading this this week, I thought, okay, a yoke is also two oxen are yoked together. So the two are pulling instead of one, which makes the burden lighter. To take my yoke upon you came up new meaning to me. If, if I'm sharing the yoke with God, yeah, or with Jesus, then my then my burden is easy. Because I always thought the yoke would be a heavy thing. I think at the cross. Right. No, that's that's a really good analysis. I, I think I would go there. That would be definitely how I would preach it. I mean, that would work perfectly for that. I have to say, uh, I was a little worried when you started reading the book because, like, that come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Um, that's always been such a comforting passage. You were afraid I was going to destroy it. I was afraid, yeah, you were going to say, well, it says here. Oh, when he used to say that, he really was saying, you can't take comfort from this passage because Rome was me. <laughs> so I'm glad to no, hear. Did not say that. <laughs> I'm glad to hear. I'm sure he probably says something like that. But no, I, I uh, no, I, I'm not rude. That's that's that is definitely the top twenty of my favorite passages. Oh, yeah. And I was thinking about what you're talking about yoke know, too. I mean, it does imply that you're still working, you're still laboring, but in a different way, with a different purpose. I mean, Jesus doesn't say, uh, "Take my pillow." <laughs> right. And right. take it easy, you know. If you yes. yoke two animals together and, and one of them doesn't do anything, then then it, it becomes a burden. So yoked if we're yoked to Jesus, then we have to we have to pull our part as well. Like we're not going on for a free ride, but but we are sharing the love, he's sharing taking the weight of it off. I think we all probably as Christians have felt that burden for people that we love people that are suffering or going through. I mean, that's part of that, that yoke, I think, that Jesus wanted us to take. And as Christians, I feel like we need to share that. Not share that, but we need to 
give that weight to God and not always be the ones to try to fix everything, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, have faith. You know, turn it over. Don't worry. You know, just, you know. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. So, no Holy Ghost here. <laughs> nope. No. Just two. Yep. Remember, Matthew struggles with what the Holy Spirit is. I think, again, the hardest part about doing scripture study like this is, is that you already know the answer. So, uh, Matthew's church is really struggling with three gods. I mean, like, that's really what's happening. We have grown up with the Trinitarian understanding. There's a father, there's a son, or my seminary friends, there's a Sophia, there's a son, and then the Holy Spirit, right? But there's this, there's this idea, there's these three in one. And Matthew's church still is really struggling with that. And I think, honestly, if I'm being completely transparent with you, I don't think they ever flesh it out, Matthew. <clears throat> I read in chapter 12, uh, that deals with the Spirit quite a bit. Yeah, but he doesn't necessarily call it the same and acts the same as before. And, and my my thought was, okay, there's just Jesus and God. Yeah. I mean, you know, there there's no hint of anybody else. You know, oh, he, no, he stacks no, Jesus, I think Matthew mentions God coming down in the form of a dove. Uh, yeah. And we usually put the form of dove as the Holy Spirit. Like a Trinity sighting. There's a father, there's a son. That's right. But there's a dove. But they don't claim him as the Holy Spirit. They're saying God came in the form of a dove. Maybe instead of a triangle, you have to be a square. You have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and whatever Sophia. else. That's and right. Sophia. Yeah, Sophia. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, uh, so being, being, being the power of God makes you square. That's right. She's square. That's right. <laughs> The uh, this 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 does cause problems for the first century church. Uh, the second century all all struggle with this idea. Uh, Matthew doesn't necessarily flesh it out as well. Luke Luke gets better, um, gets closer, but it's not until you all get to the Gospel of John that we have our understanding of Holy Spirit. Uh, Paul himself talks more about the Holy Spirit than the Gospels do. And his idea is the Spirit is uh, something that works and guides, and and that's way before the Gospels were even written. So, um, so you, because Paul's interaction with God was through a Spirit. There is. So there's a there's a different connection to God through the Holy Spirit with Paul um, and Jesus completely. He never physically met him. He, saw him on the road to Damascus, you know, according to Acts, Luke saying that, but could you say that, uh, I mean, in Matthew, like you said, they're, they're not even really dealing with the issue of a third part of, right. of, of the Godhead. They're dealing with two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, they're I mean, trying to get them understanding. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's been blasphemy for many of them their whole lives. They think, think that they're the God and son, you know, could be, yeah, completely so, different. That's what's unique. Religion is they only have one God, right? Well, yeah. in Islam, the Lord our God is one God, and now yeah. they're two. Yeah, and with the the third one out there. I finally asked him that there's so much that they knew that we don't. I mean, you know, the audience that 
just right. that they don't write down because everybody knows that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And I just want to make sure I hadn't missed something. Right? Haven't missed it. So I've always thought of the, the Godhead as being, you know, as a teacher, when I, when I speak to a classroom of kids, I speak in one tongue and one voice with them. But then when I speak to my husband, Make sure that I don't use the teacher voice. You know, I have to use it. I speak differently to him, and I speak differently to the children I teach at church. Yeah. Than to the children I teach in school, and it's still me. Yeah. So God speaks differently at different times. The Holy through the Holy Spirit through His Son, which you know really isn't His Son, or is it just Him? You know, it's a part of Him. I am a mother. I'm also a daughter. Yeah. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to navigate through. So uh, we have five more minutes. I really want to finish verse 8. Uh, at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. Already noted. You don't do that on the Sabbath. When the Pharisees saw it. They saw, said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is really, really bad, uh, which is not lawful for him or his companions to eat, but only for the priests. Or have you not read the in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in and the temple break the Sabbath and yet are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Um, this, this, is, this is massive. Um, and I'm most likely just going to kind of stop here. But this, well, I am going to stop here. But this, this idea of being having access to food, here it's right there in front of you. The people of Jerusalem do not have to starve. This is the part I want you all to catch. I've been talking about it so much, so here's the truth. The people at the time did not have to be starving. They had plenty. There was an abundant amount. And yet, you still have to pay your taxes. And you have to pay Rome. If, for whatever reason, the temple was to stop holding back food, none of the Israelites would be starving, is what Jesus is saying. David eating the, the bread of the presence was a huge sacrilegious thing, but they were starving, and that was the only bread available. See, this is, this is, this is a, a cultural argument as well as a sociological argument. <laughs> religion says this but are you seriously going to tell me that if you have the ability to eat and you're starving you're not going to do it you're this is this is free for you to grab we're not we're not stealing from anything right now this is provided to us by god did they consider that work is that yes why? okay yeah, you're yeah. Harvesting out there. they're harvesting they are stealing they are stealing and and, and on the sabbath and on the sabbath and it is harvesting technically but there's a, it's the technical thing that's causing the problem. And then I love how Jesus ends it, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. 
God is the reason we have Sabbath. There's a difference. To me, harvest means to gather and to store. Right. Or, you know, not right. just like grab something, stick it in your mouth. That doesn't count. But there are laws about Sabbath that were really strict. There were so many feet you could walk after that, though. Yeah, so many feet from your property. So yeah. I've read that people would buy property along the road since they could walk from their property to the next property that they own, and then from that property to the next. So the property may only be, you know, crate or box. So right. That's their property. Right. So they can walk from one property to the next property to the next property. They could travel as much as they wanted to if they had that. They were strategic, yeah. Oh. It's, it's the problem with the Pharisee Sabbath that we have in that we see, we see the laws, we don't see the person. See what God's intent is. Have to have the structure. I'll just use that word. Yeah. And, and that's what we respond to is the structure. Yeah. He said it has nothing to do with Sabbath or, or the the grain being out here. It has to do with the people. What I mean, what did I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. What, what did a devout Jewish family do on the Sabbath for food? Did they have to prepare it? Yeah, prepare it for that ahead of time. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I, I look at this too from the women's point of view at that time. To to prepare a meal, you had to gather the grain, pound the grain, make it into the bread. You had to uh, slaughter the animal, then drain off the blood, and, and and cut it up and cook it. It was not an easy task, and the women were already the main workers family uh, in, in so to, to make the clothing for the family they had to start with, with wool and turn it into yarn and yarn into cloth and cloth into an outfit I can see Sunday would be the I can't say she didn't want that episode but the majority of the food was prepared the day before well, I mean, that's that's how we all, I mean, I think most of us brought up this idea that for Sunday supper, we had it ready to go the night before, so all we had to do is eat it up. I mean, I I remember that. My grandma and grandpa did that. You know, they have some ministers. Uh, no, my grandma and grandpa weren't ministers until much later on in life. I always thought it was weird. My parents, <laughs> we went out to eat on Sundays. That was the only day of the week we would have to eat. Um, and that was... That was, that was that was the thing, right? And then you came home and you just vegged uh, and then until later on that evening and then you had to figure out what to eat, which was usually leftovers <laughs> or sandwiches. So uh, we'll, we'll we'll stop there. Up on your pen. Yes. Um, this is this is uh, we're going to get more into this uh, as we go. Uh, so he's we're going to have another withered hand story. Um, any other questions or comments online? All right, let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this uh, this Bible study and this opportunity to be here together. We ask, oh God, that you bless it and you do all these things in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I read that withered hand story and it made me think of the Men in Black movie where he blows the